Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy. Sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker. And folks, on today's show, we are privileged to be interviewing economist Art Carden. Hey, Ron, how are you doing this week? I'm great, Ed. This year is starting off with a blast. <laughs> well, the, the best meme I saw was the, the, the 2021 saying to 2020, hold my beer. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It was... <laughs> <laughs> this, this is this is where we are. So, uh, but uh, let's let's go, go right in. We have a lot to talk about with Professor Cardin. So I'm going to go in and let's do the bio here. Art Cardin is a senior fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research. He's also associate professor of economics for at Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Research fellow at the Independent Institute, and he is the co-author with Deirdre McCloskey, a three-time guest here on the Soul of Enterprise of Leave Me Alone and I'll Make. Make you rich. How the bourgeois deal enriched the world. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Art Carden. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Well, as I was telling you before we got on the air, Professor McCloskey was our first ever guest, and mm -hmm. what I want to hear is the story of how you, how this partnership with her came about. So it all began back in April of 2005, really. Um, I was a fourth-year graduate student at Washington University in St. Louis, and my, Professor McCloskey was, was visiting from the University of Illinois at Chicago to speak about the first volume in her big bourgeois-era trilogy, Bourgeois Virtues. We got, we got a PDF with a rough draft of the book, and, and I read the whole thing, and my advisor asked me to pick Professor McCloskey up at the airport. And I said, well, of course, yes, I'll very, very happily do that. And so for any, any like graduate students who are listening, if someone says, hey, will you go pick up an eminent scholar at the airport? The answer is yes. <laughs> hey, yes, you will. Um, so I, I got to pick her up at the airport and have sort of sort of uh, private audience with Professor McCloskey on the way from the airport to the uh, to the hotel. Um, she remarked that it, it was ambitious of me to read the entire book um, in anticipation of her presentation. And um, I got to be, we got to, we got to be pretty good friends. Um, during my time teaching at Rhodes College in Memphis, she visited me. The, she visited there, spoke there at the University of Memphis. Um, going book shopping in Oxford, Mississippi, with Deirdre and Oxford has a lot of really nice bookstores. That was that was an experience. And uh, then finally, not long after I joined the faculty at Sanford, we were in Chicago at the same time and um, had lunch, and she asked me to co-author this project with her. Wow. What, what brought it about? Did she just, she wanted a, a summary of this? Was Because that's effectively what you were able to do here. But, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. She mentioned, she mentioned early in the project that she wanted, a, she wanted like an airplane version or, or the kind of a, a, a version of her argument for people who read books on planes that people would buy in airports that would be good and useful for, um, folks who didn't want to sit down and read a 1,700-page trilogy. And that's what we have. 1,700-page <laughs> trilogy with about 500-page of endnotes. 
<laughs> yes. Yes. Amazing yes. stuff. So the first question I have for you coming from the book now is you use the, the, the word uh, innovism, if I'm even mm -hmm. saying that right, I think. And when Professor McCloskey was on our show the first time, she talked about something called market-tested innovation and supply. And is mm -hmm. is that the this is innovism the new distillation of that concept, or is it a little bit different? It is. There is no good term to describe what we really mean when most people say capitalism. Um, capitalism itself is a terrible description of of the, of the process that we're describing because it really doesn't have that much to do with capital. It's about liberty and ideas, and innovism was the best that we could come up with. And it really, so it incorporates all of those things because I think it, mm -hmm. what the thing that I think a lot of people miss is that the, the market testing part of it that that that's right. important. I mean, that's what shakes all of this out. Yes, anybody can have an idea. Whether an idea is good or not is something that has to be tested in the market. Turned out that new Coke was not a particularly good idea. Turns out the Ford Edsel was not a particularly good idea. Turns out that Crystal Pepsi was not a particularly good idea. Um, if I may say so, it turns out that a lot of Donald Trump's ventures have not been particularly good ideas. So it's, it's an embrace of innovation and an embrace of market tests for those innovations to see which ones actually make people better off. And then, of course, the supply part is then also important, too. No, no more interesting than the supply, let's say, of, oh, I don't know, COVID vaccine. Right. Right. Yes. The supply part, the supply part matters, too, because first you need you need to get people permission to actually supply stuff. And that's one of the things over the last year. This is, you know, this two weeks to flatten the curve has been sort of the longest two weeks of my life. Um, I've noticed that. Uh, the, the number of barriers to actually supplying COVID vaccines or actually supplying groceries or actually supplying whatever um, have shaken what little faith I had in, in public institutions to begin with. Yeah, it's, it's really been interesting because uh, I, I'm sure you've seen this too, but the, but the, the vaccines from Moderna was developed within mm -hmm. 48 hours of them, yes. de de of, mm -hmm. of them getting the genome, and the rest of this time has been delay from a supply standpoint, mm -hmm. really. Yes. Yeah, the big, uh, the big story on COVID, the big story on the, on the COVID pandemic and the pandemic response, I think, is government failure, specifically regulatory failure, not because the people doing the regulating are, are bad people or bad scientists necessarily. It's because they face, they, they face a bad set of instances excuse me, they face a bad set of incentives, and specifically incentives to be uh, far too risk averse. Um, I did a video for uh, the Institute for the Study of Free Enterprise at the University of Kentucky in, I think, April or so, talking about how um, the fact that UPS and uh, UPS and FedEx are, are prevented from competing with Amazon, or excuse me, Amazon, good Lord, <laughs> the U.S. Postal Service in the carriage of first-class mail, um, you know, that's, that's a problem. That's, that's been something that's throttled innovation. The fact that it's taken years for the FAA to try to figure out how to regulate drone delivery. You know, we could have had contactless delivery years ago, um, but we have not had permission. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, I've said you probably have heard this, too, that, you know, if we had put Amazon and Chick-fil-A in charge of vaccine mm -hmm. distribution, it would be done. And they would do it with a smile mm -hmm. on their face and tell us it's their yes. pleasure. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I can. Yeah. It, that, that's a, OK. That's a really interesting hypothesis, because I've, I've had to take a few covid tests. In fact, I actually had covid uh, at the kind of end of August, beginning oh, of wow. September. Um, 
I, I wonder if Chick-fil-A could actually make, you know, sticking a swab halfway up your nose um, <laughs> a pleasant experience. And my, 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 my guess is that they probably could or make it at least less bad. <laughs> less bad. You know, and then, of course, instead, I think it was announced either yesterday or today that, that Biden has tapped the ex-FDA chief to lead Operation Warp Speed now. <laughs> oh, my. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. I was, I was going to say, it looks like Warp Speed is probably going to mean something very different. Yeah. Well, uh, I said the Biden the, administration the, that the, used to. Yeah, the, the the pigs are now in charge of 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 uh, farm production. P h a r m. Yes. Kind of scary. Well, right. I've got a few minutes with you. I want to get back to the book a little bit. Let's let's talk about, and I want to hear your take on this because mm-hmm. I've heard Deirdre's. What is the Great Enrichment? The Great Enrichment is the second most important event in the history of the human species, and it is the massive migration of almost everybody to this point out of extreme, unbelievable, unimaginable poverty into a relatively high income existence today. The absolute number of people in poverty has fallen like a stone in the last couple of decades in spite of the fact that we've had an increase in global population. A lot of the discussion of, um, a lot of the discussion of inequality within countries misses the bigger and broader point, which is the development of a global middle class. As China and India have liberalized just a little bit. And then one of the things that we've seen here is even for as as authoritarian and awful as the Chinese government is, just a little bit of liberalization since the late 1970s sparked uh, an economic revolution. And now we have a world in which people like us, I I would imagine, and my ancestors are not people of any particular great distinction. I, I I, I doubt that y'all are descended from royalty. Um, you know, we are able to have this conversation. And I wanted to take a quick side trip on this because you I mentioned this. You know, Thomas mm-hmm. Maltus was the was the mm-hmm. one in the, in 1798, I believe, uh, predicted gloom and doom. Mm-hmm. He does get a particular bad rap, though, doesn't he? I mean, given what he was given at the time, his 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 hypothesis sort of made sense at the time. Well, it's it's an it's an interesting example of past performance is no guarantee of future results. And in, in Malthus's case, he, he developed an explanation that was a spot on perfect description of everything that had happened in the world up until about the late 1700s. And then the world of Adam Smith took over the world of innovation, the world of buying low and selling high, the world, of, properly speaking, a commercial society, uh, the world in which an, uh, a wave of gadgets swept over England and, uh, you know, Malthus's model explains everything that came before it, but predicts nothing that came after it. And to that end, I want to, to ask you this. You, you write in the book, um, will it continue? I'm talking about the great enrichment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people are always saying, no, well, you're mistaken. You may be cherishing, mm-hmm. as you imagine, sophistication and good-hearted pessimism more than the scientific factfulness from realistic Rosling or the historical econ- uh, economic truths of the mindful McCluskey and candid Cardin. But let me ask you this. Um, mm-hmm. Is is it in danger with the restrictions that we've seen imposed by what we like to call the Great Suppression that we've seen in the last right. year? It's always in danger. Um, it's always in danger. We could screw it up. Uh, an enormous amount of the 20th century was an effort to do exactly that in the former Soviet Union, in uh, Maoist China, in Eastern Europe. 
we could kill the goose that lays the golden eggs. Um, I am guardedly optimistic, though, that the goose is a lot more resilient than um, than it might at sometimes appear, and can can carry more weight than the FDA is currently putting on it, or the FAA is currently putting on it, or what have you. Um, I don't want to test that necessarily, <laughs> but I I'm. I, I, I've been saying since the Great Recession that I, and uh, COVID hasn't really changed this. Our, my children's standards of living when they're my age will be higher than mine are now. They won't be as high as they could have been. So um, in light of the fact that, that we would have died starving and illiterate uh, a few centuries ago, you know, I'm, I'm willing to take that. Yeah, and of course we we won't know, right? That's that's one of those things right. that that's going to be an unseen thing as as mm-hmm. we a, a, approach it. The, mm-hmm. You know, and I I pre, uh, like to get your your uh, thoughts on this. We've got about a minute left in this segment. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was so interesting, I thought, was the governmental reaction to this treated it as if it were a demand problem, like it always has. Right. The reality was it was a supply issue. We we were restricting, suppressing supply. Mm-hmm. And that's really, to use a word from 2020, unprecedented, mm-hmm. isn't it? Like we've never restricted supply. <laughs> well, it, yeah, we haven't had these kinds of supply restrictions. So specifically, it, it is, you're right, it is unprecedented. Um, so I teach principles of macroeconomics and intermediate macroeconomics. And in, in some sense, this makes my, my business cycle lectures a lot more interesting because I can actually point to what has happened since March and say, this is a real shock. This is a, this is a major change to the supply side of the economy. It's not that the problem isn't that people don't have money to spend. It's that we don't have anything to spend money on because the restaurants are, are, are closed. The businesses are closed. The factories are closed. Yeah, and it is. It's it's, it's unprecedented. I guess uh, I guess you could could say it's the equivalent of of a war, which effectively creates a supply problem as well. But yeah, right. Interesting, interesting stuff. Well, we're up against our first break. Want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. The website is, of course, the Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. We'll post the full show notes with our interview with Art Carden in the next couple of days. But right now, a word from our sponsor. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah, 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 Whatever. And four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. We're 
We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise welcome back everybody we're here with bart carden a senior fellow at the american institute for economic research and co-author, along with Deirdre McClowski, of Leave Me Alone and I'll Make You Rich, which is just a fantastic book, Art. Really thoroughly enjoyed that. Uh, as you said, uh, as we were talking before the show went live, it's a distillation of, of Deirdre's trilogy, uh, which I think mm-hmm. you guys just did a great job doing. It, towards the beginning of that book, you say, well, mm-hmm. we're not talking about anarchy here. We accept that some government is necessary, McCloskey thinks so at any rate. Card right. is a bit more sanguine about the viability of a sort of anarchy. You know, we had David Friedman on and of course his machinery uh, okay. book. Uh, are you an anarcho-capitalist? I am. Um, that, that said, um, I'm sort of very much of the, of the anything states can do, markets do better school. Um, I don't think that states are necessary I am not unconvinced that they're inevitable. Basically, uh, I don't think we need government necessarily, but if we define a state as an organization with a comparative advantage in violence, the way the economic historian Douglas North did, then I'm not sure, uh, I don't know, I'm I'm not sure states will ever be anything we can escape. Right, right. No, gotcha. I I love thinking about uh, the Mm -hmm. the alternate world that, uh, David posits in his book. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I would love to see it enacted as an experiment. Mm-hmm. Somewhere. Yeah. Um, you talked about the great enrichment. You made a comment. I just want to ask mm-hmm. you real quick with Ed that you said it was the second, one of the two most important things in history. What was, what's the other one? So, so Deirdre and I are, are both uh, confessing Christians and uh, we were, this is this is the way that she puts it. This is the second most important event in in the history of the human species after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I think that's a really nice way to kind of contextualize the the, the magnitude of what we're talking about here. Um, and this is again, like I said, this is the way that the way that she's put it before, and and uh, um, the way that I the way that I, I like to think about it. Sure, sure. No, that makes and at a Baptist university. <laughs> at a Baptist university, which is, uh, uh, which Stanford is, you know, that, that, that's a good way to get students' attention because a lot of them are very theologically or theologically very conservative and to say, okay, you had Jesus and then you had the great enrichment. And those are the two things that matter. So, right. uh, yeah. The great enrichment, just to put some mm-hmm. context around it. I, I mean, you, you cite the statistic that in 1800 mm-hmm. worldwide, Consumption was about three bucks per person per day. Mm-hmm. United States Hall in Britain might have been six bucks per day. Mm-hmm. And now we're at 130 per day in the mm-hmm. U.S., 33 worldwide. Av- I mean, this doubles every generation. And this is mm-hmm. like a 1,000% increase. I mean, this is massive. This right. whole wealth thing is relatively new in human history. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. It, it's surprising how new it is. 
Um, this is what of the last two centuries are, I think what humans have been around in our present state for what, 200,000 years. So like 99.9% of the history of our species has been poverty and slaughtering each other and more poverty and early death and no one knowing how to read. And then the last two centuries, one-tenth of 1% roughly of, uh, of, of our history has been, has been this great enrichment such that we expect things to be better every year. We expect the iPhone to get progressively better. We expect to be able to buy a new computer that's better. We expect, uh, we expect cars to get better. We expect everything to get better. Indeed, we're, we're so spoiled in some sense, and the world is so different that the major thing, or one of the major things people are wringing their, wringing their hands about is the possibility that Thing, that things aren't getting better as fast as they used to, or that we've had a productivity growth slowdown in, uh, I said, the last four or five decades. And again, there's some interesting debate about the uh, about the empirics there, but the the notion that there is growth at all, and the notion that um, anybody can expect anything to be better, is again is again relatively unique. Right, right. No, I and I, I want to ask you about that because you wrote an article that 2020 was not the worst year ever, not even close. And no. it's so true when you think about it from a historical perspective. You know, we've had George Gilder on the show and he's been a longtime mm -hmm. mentor of mine as well. And he wrote in one of his books that the notion that people get rich at the poor's at the poor's expense is popular in two places, prison. Mm -hmm and Harvard. <laughs> and you write, <laughs> you write in the book that isn't the West rich because, you know, other countries are poor. In other words, we took it from poor countries. We exploited them, colonialism, slavery, whatever. And yet, as you point out, if predation could cause a great enrichment, it would have happened millennia ago. Right. Right. Predation is, is, is not new. So uh, several years ago, Neil Ferguson, and we, we, criticized a couple of things that Ferguson said in the book, but this he got exactly right. He said, he said, colonialism and empire were the least original things that Europeans did after 1500 um, because people have been colonizing and enslaving and slaughtering each other forever. If slavery, for example, could have caused economic growth, then it would have happened a long time ago somewhere else because again, slavery, there's been slavery for as long as there have been humans. Um, slaughter, colonization, empire, etc. Again, there's all of that has existed for the entirety of the history of our species. Um, if you drive around Birmingham, where I live, you occasionally you'll see these signs that say this red mountain ore is the basis of Birmingham steel industry. And Birmingham was a steel town in the late 19th and through the 20th century. And, um, you know, the iron ore was there eons ago. Um, you know, the iron ore was there a thousand years ago, 2000 years, 3000 years ago, 10,000 years ago, and it just sat there without enriching anybody. So iron ore, iron ore by itself can't enrich anyone. It needs ideas. It needs capital. Um, most importantly, it needs innovative ways to be deployed. Right. You know, you mentioned uh, Neil, uh, the historian, Neil Ferguson, mm -hmm. is it? Or, uh, and, uh, <laughs> he talks about these killer apps that you need in order right. to get this great enrichment, you know, property rights, mm -hmm. a work ethic, consumer society, competition, modern medicine and science. Mm -hmm. And you guys are like, no, that's not it. You, you have another mm -hmm. argument for why the great enrichment took off when and where it did. Right. So 
I like the killer apps. They're very, they're nice to have. Property rights are property rights are necessary for great enrichment, but they're not sufficient. Um, property rights in the West have been more or less well defined for a very long time, and this without a great enrichment. So Magna Carta, for example, is is uh, sort of a landmark in the history of, of of property rights, but it wasn't until a few hundred years later that um, that things really got going. Medicine is interesting um, because uh, because medicine in a lot of ways lags innovation. So the great enrichment got started and got rolling before we got modern medicine. So um, modern medicine, modern medicine is, is believe me, it's nice to have. Uh, one of the things I mentioned in the book is um, sitting in the dentist chair for an emergency root canal, editing a version of the manuscript. I, I am very happy that we have modern medicine and modern modern dentistry. But uh, again, nice to have doesn't mean that it explains the great enrichment. You know, it might explain a couple of tenths of a percentage point, perhaps, um, per year, or it might explain a few dozen percentage points over a couple of centuries. But when we're dealing with a 1,500% or 9,900% increase in per capita income, it just isn't sufficient to do the heavy lifting. Right. And and you say what is sufficient to do that is a change in ethics and rhetoric and right. ideology. I mean, it's ideas and to some extent, even language. And that's, that's just so powerful. I mean, we talk about, you know, business a lot on this program, because it's a business mm -hmm. show, but we have a lot of economists on, we talk about, mm -hmm. if you want to change something, all change is linguistic, change, change your language, and you'll mm -hmm. change the conversation. And that can certainly happen inside of an organization. But then the example I love is this happened <laughs> in the world, this was what caused the great enrichment. And that's just really powerful. Right. Right. Yeah. We had a change in how we thought about innovating, buying and selling and a change in how we a change in how we uh, how we speak about it. You know, now. So, so you mentioned that uh, you know, prisons in Harvard are where people think that everybody gets rich. Uh, people who get rich got got rich at the expense of everybody else to do your work in a business like fashion is considered a compliment. And it would not have been 200 years ago, 300 years ago, 400 years ago. You think about the kinds of virtues that we extol in friends, neighbors, professors, preachers, everybody. Like the, the idea of you know, being punctual, for example, yeah, this is a, it's a bourgeois virtue. Um, keeping your promises is a bourgeois virtue. A lot of the things that we think of as just common sense morality now, um, <clears throat> you know, these were, these were things that I'll just put it this way. If you were an aristocrat in 1600 or 1500 or 500, you know, keeping your promises wasn't really that big a deal. You were, you were above such things. You, you, you were, you were of such great soul that mere propositional truth wasn't important for you. Right. And, and innovation was in some respects illegal. I mean, mm -hmm. the King would yeah. shut it down or cut your head off or something. Right. right? I mean, it was right. really, that, that's a big deal. It is. Yeah. So in England, in England, several times they tried to shut down coffee houses. Um, Sweden, for example, uh, also tried to shut down coffee houses. Uh, around the time that coffee started being used, Muslim clerics were debating whether or not the caffeine buzz that you get is a type of intoxication and therefore, therefore a sin according to, uh, according to Islamic law. So, um, it's not been for lack of trying that 
um, the governments haven't been able to, to censor or quash stuff. But eventually, again, we got to the point where people said, okay, maybe it's okay to drink this coffee stuff. And then people would get together at coffee houses and talk about new ideas and talk about stocks and talk about uh, business plans and things like that. And now here we are. Here we are a couple centuries later. Right, right. I think it was Matt Ridley who pointed out in his book, How Innovation Works, that one of the reasons they didn't like the coffee houses was people would gather there and talk about how bad right. the king was doing. <laughs> right. Well, our, right. This is fantastic. I can't wait to dive in a little bit more when, I, um, when we go out in the last segment. But folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Check us out on Patreon and you can become a subscriber and listen to our show commercial free, as well as our bonus content. And that's at patreon.com slash TSOE, which is now sponsored by 90 Minds. Get ahead, hire a mind. Check them out at 90minds.com. And now a word from our sponsors. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And today we are on with Art Carden, co-author of the book with Deirdre McCloskey, Leave Me Alone and I'll Make You Rich, How the Bourgeois Deal Enriched the World. Highly recommended by both Ron and I. It's a terrific book, a great, great read, funny, laugh out loud in some places, which is just terrific. Uh, and But Art, I want to turn our, our, our attention to the, I guess it's the middle section of the book where you talk about the pessimisms. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll leave the readers to read about the seven old pessimisms on their own, and then yeah. they absolutely should, should, uh, should read through those chapters carefully. But let's talk about the three new ones, and I'll just read them. Mm-hmm. That environmental decay is an existential threat, that humanity Humanity is being ruined by a new era of inequality and that technological unemployment from artificial intelligence is the general fate. Let's talk first. 
environmental decay is an existential threat. We are destroying everything and everyone, and we're all going to die. <laughs> um, if this were true, if this were true, and, and, and I say this is someone who cares about environmental issues sure. because I care about the you know, quality of human life. I mean, people, people do and people should. You know, we, I take my dog for walks at the local park, and we don't, you know, abuse the ducks just for the kick of, or just for the heck of it. Um, <clears throat> I don't think I don't think that environmental decay is uh, is going to destroy us, or that global warming is uh, is an existential threat to humanity. And and frankly, I don't think that a lot of people who are making these claims really believe it either. Um, hysteria sells. And it sells very, very, very well. If uh, if our book sells as many copies as Al Gore's books have sold, I will be happy. Um, <clears throat> but there, there's a phenomenon called the Kuznets curve. So there's a, a an economist named Simon Kuznets who identified identified this, and uh, it's been applied to environmental issues. And during the early stages of industrialization, the environment the environment gets dirtier because people they want more stuff. But as people get richer and richer and richer and richer and richer, they come to demand more environmental amenities, and we end up getting cleaner environments. Um, <clears throat> the fact that we have uh, that we have cleaned things up so much over the last few decades has uh, has me a little bit more optimistic again about the uh, about the future. People, of course, will point at things like the EPA and the Clean Air Act and and things of that nature, but from a very very broad perspective. We have the luxury of having an EPA and sacrificing probably a few percentage points of economic growth every five to ten years um, because we're rich. So we're we're rich enough to demand things like environmental and environmental amenities. Moreover, e even if environmental pessimism were more warranted, the solution is to find ways to find ways to price what isn't currently priced. So, um, just to, to use an example, I've, I've heard it said that Miami won't exist in a hundred years. And all right, well, that's possible. Um, if that's true, then you should be able to buy and sell futures and options in Miami real estate and make a fortune on the basis of your superior insight. So, um, uh, yeah, presumably you buy, or well, let's see here. You, you sell a future claim to Miami real estate and then when it's underwater, you buy it for nothing and, and, and uh, make, good, uh, make good on your contract. Make so a lot of money. <laughs> I think there are yeah, – absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I think there are, a lot of, there are a lot of ways around environmental pessimism that um, aren't fully appreciated. And moreover, when I see how anxious people are about climate change and the future of the world, I think we're, we're really doing our kids a disservice by indulging this kind of hysteria. Um, Greta Thunberg, who's the, who's the sort of uh, environmental celebrity now, I, I, I feel bad for her because, like, I remember when I was a teenager, I, I didn't know anything. Um, and yet I think people are, are sort of pushing her around and using her as a poster child for an explicit political movement that is, I don't think, particularly well-founded. Well, and ironically, part of that is the people who were no nukes back at the time when you and I were growing right. up that scared the crap out of us because of nuclear mm -hmm. weapons and won't right. allow nuclear power plants to be built, which is one of the right. answers to environmental problem. But I, I, I'd love to right. go down that path. We could spend a whole hour on mm -hmm. that. I, I want to get to – oh, 
to, to, to the others. Um, you write in the book, and material equality is not an ethically relevant goal. What do you mean by that? So in a world where every in a world where there's still people who don't have enough, we'll say I don't think the fact that some people have more than others is itself a problem. The fact the fact is that there's still people in poverty. It's not the it's not the problem that I have something and Jeff Bezos happens to have a whole lot more of it. Um, granted, there's this sort of sort of naive idea, I guess it's popular on Twitter, that you just take all of Jeff Bezos's money or all of Elon Musk's money and, and then redistribute it, and boom, we don't have poverty anymore. But the problem with that, and we discuss this in the book, is that okay, then from that point forward, who now has any incentive to invest in productive assets if they're going to be expropriated and redistributed? Fundamentally, redistribution does not do anything to alleviate long-term poverty. Production of finished goods and services is what alleviates is what alleviates long term poverty. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and by the way, the math doesn't work even if you do just redistribute it anyway, right? right? It's not even close. Mm-hmm. Um, lastly, turning our attention, this is something our audience um, is is particularly attuned to is this whole artificial intelligence uh, argument. And here's from the book again. But artificial intelligence is different, you say. Stupid technologies right. like railways always replace sweat and manual labor, mm-hmm. but smart technologies are going to replace the problem solving and mind work. My work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're all going right. to die, Art. We're all going to die. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and indeed, I mean, the possibility of, you know, Professor Bot or something like that, where you're replacing. <laughs> Yeah, replacing academicians like myself. Um, if this were going to happen, it already would have happened, I think, uh, particularly with respect to academia, because the amount of, of high quality video you can find on YouTube is incredible, especially for something like an introductory economics course. But um, there, there's a social aspect of higher education and a social aspect of learning that doesn't happen when it's watching videos on a screen, or even when it's something that, that, that's screen-mediated. Uh, I think that's something that the, that the COVID pandemic has taught us. Second, another thing we point out is that, is that smart technologies have been coming along for, uh, coming along for, for years. Um, a financial calculator, to use just one example, uh, shoot, a four-function calculator, to use, uh, to use an example. These are smart technologies in, in that they replace Mental work, they replace mental calculation. There's a, um, you can get actually a, a, you can get a financial calculator app for your phone for 15 bucks, and it can do calculations in fractions of a second that would take you forever to do by hand. Um, <clears throat> so I don't think necessarily that the development of artificial intelligence is a, uh, is a threat to standards of living. If they were, then I would expect I would expect to see wages falling, and I would expect to see um, well, yeah, I would expect to see I would expect to see more people changing what they're doing in anticipation of, of being replaced by robots. And there are and, and there are there are people who are doing that. You know, being a truck driver, for example, is probably not not going to be a viable career path in a few years. But um, the technology that's being developed is a complement to rather than a substitute for the things that make us human. The way that Joel Mokir put it, um, artificial intelligence may someday be the world's best research assistant. And indeed, I wouldn't be able to do what I do without Google, but it will probably never be the world's best researcher. 
Because it, because the artificial intelligence doesn't ask new questions, right? It just helps us answer better questions. It doesn't come up with new and better questions. Right. And, and in, in this, in this I, I, I don't know enough about the technology of artificial intelligence to really say anything, uh, anything authoritative. But I, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about the ways that my life is changing and how so much of what I want now, so many of the services that I, that I want to consume are going to be people helping me contextualize technology. Um, say, okay, look, I'm a, you know, 41 years old, live in a, you know, I've got three kids and, and uh, I need my, I need my, I need all of my smart technology to do the following things for the following reasons. And um, <clears throat> at least so far, artificial intelligence hasn't come up with, hasn't come up with ways to solve, uh, to solve those problems. It's gotten very, very good at targeted advertising, but, uh, <laughs> but I don't think it's going to be, um, uh, or I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's not that good. I, I got the uh, the ad supported a new ad supported Kindle, and all of my all of my ads on my Kindle are for like romance novels and Joel Osteen's new book. So, you know, these are things I'm not really in the. I, I, these are things I'm not really in the market for. Or the algorithm is a lot smarter than I thought it was, and it's telling me something I don't want to know about myself. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I, I have, but yeah, the, the, there was a big big stir over the summer with I, I think that Netflix stock mockumentary documentary kind of thing on on uh, mm -hmm. artificial intelligence and how it was manipulating mm -hmm. us and all. Of this. And I just was just mm -hmm. thought that was just a lot of, lot load yeah. of garbage. You know, here uh, mm -hmm. George Gilder at Ron mentioned earlier uh, in in his book Life After Google talks about how the fact that yeah all of these things might come to pass we might have driverless cars that really can do mm -hmm. and i think that that's that's probably the closest thing in drones and people that do accounting bots and all of these things but the 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 human species is incredibly adaptive at figuring out ways mm -hmm. to serve one another and this gets back to right. your you know a baptist line that you said during the during the break there there's a marriage there which is one of the reasons why this call, show mm -hmm. is called the soul of enterprise because we believe that business mm -hmm. has a spiritual component yeah yeah absolutely people are people are incredibly resilient and we've seen this every time that every time there have been major changes in the world. One of the examples, the classic example, of course, is agriculture. Everybody used to be a farmer and now hardly anybody is. And indeed, the people who are in farming now are probably only doing it because we're subsidizing them. Um, this is where, well, so I mentioned Malthus earlier, for example, um, you know, unluckiest scholar in history because he, he explained everything that had happened and predicted nothing. Um, this is one of the reasons people hate economists because we can explain the past pretty well, but we don't know what's going to happen, or we, we, we can't explain the future. The Some pushback I always get is people say, well, what are people going to do? What exactly are people going to do? And I don't know the answer to that. That is why we need markets. That's why we need prices. These are the things that guide resources and guide people into the kinds of occupations that uh, – the kinds of occupations that serve others. I mean, I've got a few ideas. I know, I know some things I would hire people to do, but <clears throat> uh, I, I don't know necessarily what the, pardon me, what the the rest of the 21st century holds. Uh, if, if I did, my 
uh, stock portfolio would probably be worth a lot more. That's right. As, as Gilder puts it, innovation always comes as a surprise to us. And so that's <laughs> right. That, that's, that's what, what the key is. Well, Art, thank you so much for appearing today. Uh, Ron's sure. going to take you the rest of the way home on the fourth segment. But thanks again, I want to say, for, uh, for, sure. for, for me. Uh, hope we come on uh, again sometime. There's so much more in this rich book that you have. Uh, the book, again, is Leave Me Alone and I'll Make You Rich, How the Bourgeois Deal Enriched the World. But right now, a word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing Hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise welcome back everybody we're here with art Carden, the co-author of leave me alone and i'll make you rich and art uh ed and i are big fans of dickens christmas carol and his other mm-hmm. books. He was a fantastic writer. I just mm-hmm. uh, read an article in The Economist. He developed over a thousand characters, if you look at his Wikipedia mm-hmm. page, and we're still talking about these characters. Yet he was right. a lousy economist. You, you, you talk about in the book, one of his books, Hard Times, is a muddle-headed mm-hmm. in its understanding of, of industry and capitalism. He really didn't get it, did he? No, he didn't. He didn't. Dickens Dickens was a, a great wordsmith and a fantastic storyteller who didn't understand the world that was happening around him or he didn't understand the changes that were happening around him. Um, of course, Adam Smith really didn't see how the world was changing, nor did David Ricardo. So I guess he can kind of be forgiven for that. But um, Dickens looks into what he sees as this industrial cauldron and – again, just draws precisely the wrong conclusion, which is, well, these rich people are, are, are getting rich at the expense of the Oliver Twists and the David Copperfields and the Nicholas Nicklebys of the world. And um, they're just sort of riffraff who are being, you know, being abused now. Um, <clears throat> when in fact, what was going on 
was a great enrichment such that the descendants of you know Dickens minor characters are or, or Dickens uh, Dickens most most sort of sympathetic characters are ultimately far better off. Um, right. There's always some con- there's always some controversy around Christmas because uh, uh, one thing economists like to do is sort of tongue in cheek defenses of Ebenezer Scrooge, yes. um, and say you know it, it's you know here's here's what's really going on. You know, we, we we admit that Scrooge was a miserable was a miserable guy, but um, <clears throat> but Dickens didn't appreciate that even say for all of all of Scrooge's misery, and of course he's one of Dickens' most iconic characters probably. Um, even for all of his, his apparent misery, he was making himself miserable in the service of everybody else. That's right. And uh, that's, again, like I said, that's something that Dickens did not get. Right, right. No, there's a defense of the miser. I think Walter Block wrote mm-hmm. a book defending the undefendable. Right. And, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Another question I have to ask you, because this certainly has become, I think, more salient during COVID, but this mm-hmm. whole movement of, you know, eating and buying local and, you know, I think about even my local coffee shop, say, as opposed mm-hmm. to Starbucks buys internationally. I mean, I doubt their express uh, machine was made within a hundred mile radius or even the coffee. Right. And and you you guys quote a friend of yours, what will be next? A hundred mile sourced medicines, a hundred mile right. sourced ideas. I mean, this is a ludicrous idea and movement, isn't it? Well, you'll notice, so a lot of times it, it'll talk about buying beans from local roasters because, you know, co- coffee doesn't grow in North, in, in North America, as far as I know. I mean, I'm sure it could with the, with the, the, the right, if, if we poured enough money on it, sure. but, um, you know, the beans are coming from somewhere. Maybe they're being roasted locally, buying local. So buying local, buying organic, buying non-GMO are, these are con- types of conspicuous consumption that the left approves of. And uh, it, it's, we should make no mistake. That's exactly what they are. Um, <clears throat> there's nothing, there's no reason to buy local just because it's local. Um, if you're buying local because the tomatoes actually taste better, then that's fantastic. Go ahead and buy, go ahead and pay a little bit extra for local tomatoes. But um, the, the warm, fuzzy feeling people are getting from paying too much for corn or paying too much for cucumbers at the farmer's market is something that should be replaced in the sense that no, they're actually wasting resources by purchasing stuff, purchasing stuff that was made or grown locally that would have been cheaper had they bought it from, uh, from a little bit farther out. And now, uh, once again, I'll, I'll say this does, this is, this isn't to say that, that, uh, you shouldn't buy for quality. I mean, obviously a lot of locally grown produce is, is going to be delicious, but, um, if you have two otherwise identical tomatoes, the one that costs less that was grown on the other side of the world is the right choice insofar as it consumed fewer resources in order to produce it. Right. You know, you were talking about jobs and artificial intelligence with Ed and mm-hmm. we all know that jobs isn't the right way to measure an economy. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not about producing jobs, right? Otherwise right. it's a Milton Friedman line, give everybody spoons, let them move the mm-hmm. earth with that. But, are you in favor of a universal basic income or some type of adaption thereof? I have not made up my mind on that. Um, I see arguments for it. Well, I'll put it this way. If we replaced the entire welfare state as it currently exists with some kind of universal basic income, I would wake up a very happy economist. I think a negative income tax a la Friedman or an expansion of the earned income tax credit, again, with an elimination of all other welfare, 
would be a huge, huge, huge step in the right direction. The problem is that we have um, the problem is that a lot of the basic income guarantee proposals are to put that on top of this sort of existing dog's breakfast that is um, that is the American welfare state, and that I would say is is not a very good idea. Right. So you would support more of the Charles Murray idea where he gets rid yeah. of everything, including Social Security, Medicare. Right. Give everybody yep. twelve grand, and he even wants to pass a constitutional mm -hmm. amendment to make sure that all this mm -hmm. other stuff goes away. Yeah, yeah, and this gets to the the point I was making earlier about anarchy. Like, I I, I don't think any of this is necessary. I don't think this is all stuff that the, that the state should do in some sort of grand sense. But given that we have governments, and given that they do things, there are bad and less bad ways to do them. And I think. Um, well, so, so we, we mentioned COVID vaccines earlier. Um, John Cochran at the Hoover Institution pointed out that one of, the, one of the basic ideas in economics is don't try to redistribute income by messing with prices. If you're going to try to redistribute income, just redistribute income and change the starting points. Then let the market rip, and we end up with um, high innovation and high standards of living. Right. And I couldn't agree more. Um, they should apply that same logic, I think, to the distribution of this vaccine because <laughs> right. they seem to be botching that up as well. Uh, yep. Art, on December 19th, I think it was in the Independent Institute uh, on their website, you wrote an article, 2020 was not even the worst year ever, not even close. Can nope. you defend that? I know you can. Oh, but. yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, pick virtually any year before 2020. And um, the case becomes more rock solid the farther back you go in time. Um, and we, we mentioned this, we do use an example of this in the book, um, where people have this sort of false, weird nostalgia for the past, where in a different comic strip, Pearls Before Swine, one of the characters goes seeking Willie Mays and says, go get back in center field, Willie Mays. Do I want to go, want to go take this back to 1957 when this was one country again? And Willie Mays responds, when I couldn't eat in certain restaurants? And, you know, there's a, the, the flavor of our nostalgia is probably going to differ, um, depending on our, on, on our life experience. But, um, you know, I, I know that I'm not probably not going to die of tuberculosis. I know I'm not going to know the simple and quiet dignity of burying a child the way that everybody did 500 years ago, but you know, I'm, I'm willing to give that up for, you know, iPhones and good Wi-Fi. Right. Yeah. I, you know, you guys quote, who is it? Thomas Babington Macaulay in the book, you know, and he says on mm -hmm. what principle is it that when we see nothing but betterment behind us, we are to expect nothing but deterioration before us. I think that's right. such a good point. Right. Yeah. I, I, in looking at the history of the last couple of hundred years for all of its imperfections, it makes me optimistic about the next 200 or 300 or 500 and it makes me very optimistic about the world that our kids are going to inherit. Yeah. Like you said, we've, we've eliminated poverty and wealth, wealth creation did that because it's the only antidote to poverty. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, Art, this has been fantastic again. Thank you so much for coming on. We love the book. We recommend it highly all over the place and folks who will post full show notes. Ed, what do we have up for next week? That's a great question, and I do not have my spreadsheet open. so <laughs> it's, it, Well, I'll tell you, it's Ann Janzer. Who oh, right, right, right. Ann Janzer. Uh, right. Subscription marketing. So we will be talking subscription economy next week with her. All right. See you in 167 hours.
This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern. That's 1 p.m. Pacific, where we'll talk to Ann Jenzer. In the meantime, please feel free to visit us at www.thesoulofenterprise.com. Thank you.